Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you're a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, growing abundantly, and if you want to improve your overall life. My name is Jay Phantom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Storybox. I hope you guys are, are keeping safe out there and that you are doing well. Today, my friends, I have an absolute machine of a, of a woman on the Storybox. She kind of puts me to shame with all the things that she has achieved in her, in her life. But for those of you that know uh, and have, have followed her on social media, her name is Dr. Steffi Cohen. Now, she is a 25 times world record holder in uh, powerlifting and she's the first woman in history of the sport to deadlift 4.4 times her own body weight. Uh, she's a doctor of physical therapy, author, co-host of the Hybrid Unlimited podcast and business owner passionately educating people with a no BS evidence-based view on all things training and nutrition. She is the co-owner of Hybrid Performance Method where hundreds of thousands of strength seekers go monthly to find progressive strength training and nutrition programs, plus tons of free articles and videos that she puts together. Steffi is a creative mind and loves collaborating with a hybrid team and partners to develop powerful content, inspired fashion in both fitness and nutrition tools for a stronger life. Uh, she is the co-author of the, the book, Back in Motion, which is available now for you guys to pre-order or get a copy of that. But she is honestly an, an incredible human. Her story is rather fascinating. So I know you guys are going to get a lot out of uh, her advice and, and what she has been through to get to where she is today. Um, I hope you guys like it. Uh, but nonetheless, my friends, if you do get something from it, please uh, share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know. Don't forget, you can watch the full video now available on YouTube. All links are in the show notes below. Uh, also, just a quick note, if you do get something from uh, my conversations with Vishen Lakihani and Marissa Peer, I've teamed up with Mind Valley to uh, give you guys some free courses uh, from Vision and Marissa. So if you do, if you did get something from uh, my conversations with them, 
Links are in the show notes below. Highly encourage you guys to go and check it out and let me know what you think of that too. Uh, Lots of exciting things coming up as well. But anyway, I'm going to be quiet now because it is time to dive into the story box and listen to the story of none other than the powerhouse woman herself, Dr. Steffi Cohen. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Before we dive into, I guess, your backstory, how you got started doing all this, what this is all about, I I have one question I love asking all my guests at the very, very start, which is, what does success look like for you? That's a good question. You know, I was preparing for the Tim Ferriss uh, podcast recently, and that was one of the questions that he that he prompted me with. Um, I really think it has to do with your own personal definition of success. And I think it comes in many shapes and forms, you know, to some success might be financially driven to some might be building a family to some might be building personal relationships and whatnot. Um, To me personally, success involves the impact that you have on other people's lives. So you know, it sounds cheesy to say, oh, I want to help as many people as possible. But honestly, I feel like the the more resources I have, the more I can grow my business, the more money I can save, the more I can free up my, my time to think about ways to service others, essentially. So if I can find a way to, you know, not, not only enjoy what I'm doing, monetize it, but also find a way to bring meaning to other people's lives, that's what success looks like to me. When was the moment for you that you realized that really impact was success for you? Has it been sort of like this gradual thing over time or is there a catalyst moment more recently that you started thinking about it when you went on Tim Ferriss's show? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think over the years, my definition and perspective uh, on success has, has changed, morphed, you know, just based on life lessons exist. Um, I think it became more and more apparent the more I grew my business and the more money I made because I realized the power that that gives you, right? Like you can you can do a lot of good if you have a lot of resources, if you have a lot of connections, if you have an, a, enough free time. Mm-hmm. So it became more apparent just the more financially successful that I became. Mm. Did you grow up with money? Did you Did you come from money at all? No. So I grew up in Venezuela. Um, middle-class family, you know, humble beginnings. Uh, my, my parents supported me through high school. Uh, and then in college, I kind of was a little bit more on my own, still had the support of them, but you know, not, nothing, no, definitely didn't come from money came from middle-class mm. family, um, hardworking though. Mm. So they taught you the value of hard work and determination and grit really. From a young age. Absolutely. Yeah. My dad's a hustler. He's, he's, he's a business, he's an entrepreneur, a business owner. Um, so is my mom. So in just in growing up in a country like, like Venezuela, that's, you know, a third world country where the path for you, at least like the professional path is not clearly delineated as much as it is here in the States. You know, here you kind of like go to college then, or go to high school, go to college, find a job. And there's so many options. There's so many things that you can do. Whereas, Whereas we are very limited in what we can do and even what we can study. I didn't even know physical therapy was a profession until I moved here to the States and I was in my second year of college. So 
you know, just having to figure out things for yourself and having to create your own path with very limited resources in a country that is just not conducive to do so gives you some some interesting skills you know the the my friends that i keep in touch with that live here in the states are so resourceful just starting with actually this is a lady that i just recently met she's my interior designer name's julia it's so amazing to see how she how she does things comparing her to another designer who is american Mm -hmm. just just finding, you know, oh no, this 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 is costing too much with these people. I'm gonna go bargain at, you know, in Hialeah in the ghetto here in Miami, find a welder that doesn't, you know, she's so resourceful. Like she just goes in these rabbit holes and just tries to problem solve using her imagination, using her creativity, and using her street smartness. Mm. So I think it's more so related to my upbringing, I guess. So speaking about that limitation being in Venezuela and not having the same, I guess, opportunities available to you as what you would get, say, in the States or even here in Australia, how did that really shape your identity of self and purpose and worth? Um, I mean, I always I always knew that I, I didn't want to work for anybody. I have a really hard time following rules stupid rules especially i understand look look look. hold on let me backtrack here (laughs) i understand why rules exist all right like we're if not it would be complete anarchy if not it would be venezuela but um you know i I like a little bit more flexibility and i like to be able to express myself creatively and 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 i don't like to be pigeonholed in one box kind of thing so yeah i mean i don't know i don't have a concrete answer for you i don't really know but um all I knew was that I wanted to be my own boss and I wanted to to create a job for myself that gave me freedom of time and place. I think I'm dancing around your question. What was your question again? I to do that. <laughs> it, was, it was towards uh, shaping your identity of self and worth and purpose and I guess really knowing what you wanted to be when you grew up, having that limitation around you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, the only thing I knew for a fact growing up was that I wanted to be rich and famous. I remember being eight years old and it was one of the first times that I came to the States with my family and I went to Foot Locker and I stood in front of the mirror. There was a massive poster of Mia Hamm uh, at the store. I tried on some soccer cleats. I'm in in front of the mirror and I'm like practicing my kick and I tell my mom, one day I'm going to be rich and famous. And that was the beginning of it all. That was the beginning of it all. Like I just wanted to, I didn't know at that point it might've, I don't know, maybe it was just childish. Like I didn't really understand what that meant, but, and I didn't have a say like a clear path of exactly what that would look like, but you know, at least I knew what direction I wanted to go into. I can relate to that on many different levels, but more specifically, I went to business college. I didn't want to go to business college. I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, and then when I went to business college, I had one particular, uh, you know, I had my, my own version of success, which was very similar growing up. It was like, I wanted money growing up in a lower class family here in Sydney, Australia. I wanted the money. I wanted to be rich and famous, same deal, uh, but it's film. And then when I went to business college, I thought I had a, um, a teacher that actually came up to me and said, you're going to be successful one day. And immediately my brain went to, you know, having lots of money, having the nice cars, you know, the fame, the wealth, you name it. But then I don't think that's what he meant at all. I think he 
he saw how hard I actually work because having that hustler mentality. And I think it's, it's it like when you have that ambition, that goal that you set for yourself when you're young, you go after it. And I'm curious for you, Steffi, like, uh, what was the, the trajectory going from, okay, I want to be rich and famous to actually working towards becoming, I guess, successful, rich, and you are famous now. <laughs> so yeah. what, what yeah, was, I'm famous, I'm famous in a very small niche, but which is pretty famous. nice. I like it. Mm. You, still, uh, yeah. What was it like for you? So did you go to uh, college in Venezuela or you, I think you came to the States, I believe. Yeah, so I moved. I moved here when I was seventeen, uh, with a with a initially with a with a soccer scholarship. Uh, ended up not taking that and just focusing on on my school. Changed majors like five times. I didn't really know exactly what or how or when. I didn't. I didn't have. You know, I was never the type of person that would sit down and have like a their two, five, ten, fifteen, twenty year plan and have everything mapped out. I've never been like that. I'm more so kind of focused on the on the present and focus focused on trying to make myself one percent better every day in anything. It didn't have to be something directly related to the field of study that I was in. It could have been, you know, improving my communication skills. You know, I took a bunch of public speaking classes, for example, trying to be a better friend, trying to make myself memorable when I meet other people. Are they remembering who I am and my name? How good am I about following up? How good am I about, you know, am I making an effort and sending thank you letters when I meet somebody that I want to keep in touch with? It's like all of these kind of little little skills that you accumulate during the year, during the years, that kind of are stepping stones towards something bigger that you don't even know what it might be. Mm. So, you know, there were many moments of uncertainty where I just wasn't sure if I was even in the right path or if I was doing the right things or doing enough. But I just, you know, with a little bit of trust and faith in myself, I kind of just kept going. You know, there were there were definitely days where, where in, in time periods of my life where I was terrified, didn't really know what was going to happen. But Again, just chipping at it and, and acquiring as many useful life practical skills as possible. So I ended up changing my majors a bunch of times, ended up studying exercise physiology, sports medicine, graduated University of Miami. Um, stopped that I wanted to go into exercise physiology work as a, you know, doing VO2 max tests, cardio, uh, cardiovascular tests, helping people with their nutrition, that kind of stuff. Realized that the job market was extremely limited and wanted to expand my options. It wasn't, at that time, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be a physical therapist or that I was really passionate about it, but I, re I wanted to expand my knowledge and expand my options. Because, you know, the biggest prop, the biggest issue that most people run into is when you are cornered and you only have one choice. Mm. For example, I've met so many boxers over, over the last little while who all they have is boxing. And I just can't understand that. Like that would stress me out so much. It would make me so anxious. Not only having one thing. And what if you get injured? What if something happens? What if whatever, you know? So keeping my options open and, and as keeping them as broad as possible. Mm. That's essentially kind of how I got into physical therapy school. I wanted to have a career that was, that allowed me to speak in an, in an, authoritative way like with authority about certain topics about health and fitness I want to be 
wanted to be respected in the field. Um, and man, it, 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 it did, it paid off so much, you know, even though I don't practice in the traditional sense, I don't see, I don't see, uh, patients in clinic. I use my knowledge from PT school every day, mm. my ability to think critically, my ability to interpret research, my ability to, um, focus on things for long periods of time, uh, and just having the degree and just having that, those two letters in the, at, the, at the beginning of my name have just opened so many doors. Mm. So, you know, then from there, I think it was yeah, my first year of PT school, we started hybrid and I essentially was using the knowledge that I was gaining in PT school to write articles. We, we grew up pretty a large and organic email list where I, we were sending these these articles to and I try to incorporate as much like entertainment into it as possible which I think was one of the differentiating factors between me and the other nerds that write is that I'm I'm scientific but I'm also very creative and I can you know I can I can dumb things down and put them in a way with analogies and other techniques that make people you know make uh, make complex topics easy to understand essentially mm. and that's how it all started that's how hybrid that's how hybrid got started uh i don't know why i'm even telling you about hybrid is that not what you asked for but that's essentially the trajectory <laughs> that's essentially a trajectory that led me to where i am no because it, it hybrid sort of leads that, that all that that you're mentioning kind of leads to hybrid which is pretty cool the hybrid um, and the rich and the fame and the richness yeah, which we'll get into in a moment. But what I'm curious about is you mentioned there for a moment, you're creative, you're very creative. And I'm curious, what is your creative process like? What do you go through? Do you exercise to be more creative? What happens for you? Um, it really depends on what I'm working on. Uh, but for the most part, it's a free, having free time, like having time where you just are not doing anything, not even watching TV. You're just like sitting down in a park and you're just thinking, being observant of the, of the world around you and trying to find solutions to common problems. Um, Do you get a lot of free time? What's that? You get a lot of free time? Not a lot, but I get enough. I, I, I purposefully give myself some free time. And that's where the whole thing about being a box comes in and being able to delegate and being able to focus on tasks that only you can do and, and, and other skills that I've, that I've learned as a, I guess, as a business owner. But I think mostly, yeah, it comes from, I think creativity stems from having an inquisitive mind, being curious about the world around you, being observant uh, and, and open in, in all of your senses, you know, just looking around and looking at art and listening to music and, and yeah, like trying to, trying to solve problems, you know? Uh, for me, my creative outlet is exercise. I've got to wake up early in the morning. I've got to go out and literally get in fresh air, get in nature. I feel like I'm grounded in that. And then I, my brain just goes to work. <laughs> like it, and my, my mom says that I have this massive problem. Like it doesn't stop. Like, and I'm, uh -huh. I'm always curious, like, because I've always like, been thinking of new ideas how can i better myself in this and that my business all, all this stuff and it just doesn't shut itself off and I, I like how you mentioned you've got to like go and find that that place just to sit there in, in nature 
And I'm curious, like with your busy schedule, which is no doubt crazier than mine, how does one create that life for themselves? <laughs> In what way? Like, how do I find, how do I schedule my time so I can have some time for myself or? How do you manage, how do you, how do you manage your days so you can actually get some, a little bit of time for yourself? So, I mean, I schedule my week so that there's full days that are catered for something specific instead of like trying to bounce around. So I've tried the whole thing of like, okay, I'm going to wake up at six from six to seven. I'm going to be in my flow state and I'm going to get in my sauna and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to think about, no, I've tried that whole thing and that whole bouncing around in a day is, oh, sorry. And that whole bouncing around in a day just doesn't work for me. So the way that I schedule my week is Mondays and Wednesdays are my, my podcast and media days. So I just sit down here. I have, I've, I'm a guest in five podcasts today, for example. Wow. So that's just easy for me, right? Like I do my hair and makeup once I sit here and I talk right for, for five hours in the morning. I did my uh, training and, and film some educational videos and that's it. So I know it's a, 12 hour day where, where all I'm doing is media and podcasting. Then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I give myself more time to train. So I train, I have a double day, train for six hours in the morning. I answer my emails and I kind of like uh, schedule the things for the rest of the days. Mm -hmm. uh, then Fridays, it's kind of like a miscellaneous day where I do everything. Uh, and then the weekend is a little bit more, uh, Usually, and now with the pandemic, it hasn't been that much, but it's starting to pick up again. Um, been more for networking. So I live in Miami. It's a place where everybody wants to, everybody always needs an excuse to come here. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, I mean, my, my, my house is a, is an Airbnb. Like every week there's somebody in town. There's, there's someone there to entertain, which is great. I'm not, I'm not complaining. I love it. Um, but a lot of my time also gets, has to be allocated towards that networking, um, being on other people's YouTubes and whatever, nurturing friendships, that kind of stuff. Which if, um, you go to your YouTube, which is pretty cool. I love the collaborations. You did one recently with Matt Fraser. Um, mm -hmm. I think you, you boxed together, which is pretty cool <laughs> to see. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm always curious, like people that actually have crazy schedules, how they go about managing it. I think it's very useful for someone like myself or a, a young person that thinks like, oh, I don't have the time, like to actually schedule their life appropriately. Um, so if you can do it, Steffi, and your schedule is much more crazier than mine is, then anyone can do it really. Um, and, and I've been way busier than I am now, especially when I was in school. Mm. What helps me is just doing what you have to do when you have to do it. There's no secrets. Like you just prioritize. What's the most important thing for you right now? Okay, that's what comes first. Everything else, it comes second. Whenever you get a chance to do it, that's what how school was for me. Right? I was worried about staying in school. My program was extremely rigorous and very strict about attendance and about grades, about passing tests. So that was my main priority. Anything else, kind of just was in the passenger seat, and I did whenever I could. Which is why during grad school, I. I took everything out from my living room and I put a squat rack and a platform. Mm. And I would, I would, as I'm studying in between, in between my, uh, in between my squats, I would sit down and study, you know, or in between my, my sessions in there. So you just kind of 
do what you have to do to keep things moving in, in, in the right direction mm. with no excuses. Where did you fall in love with weightlifting or powerlifting in the first place? How did that come about? This is going to be okay. I, I, I joke about this, but honestly, it's the truth. Weightlifting, powerlifting kind of found me. I I never really fell in love with it, if I'm being completely honest. I have always been into sports, mostly team sports, and sports that require a lot more like expression of fitness and athleticism that involve many other aspects of performance. And I don't know, you know, it started with CrossFit. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get my weight, my 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 legs stronger, my weightlifting, my Olympic weightlifting better. That's kind of how I landed in weightlifting and made progress so fast, like so fast that I couldn't not do it kind of thing. Like I was found by a, a coach that was a trained a bunch of Olympians and he, his name's Camilo. And he was pretty much like, listen, like you can go to the Olympics, you can win. Mm. So he coached me for three, four years. I got all the way to, I think I was ranked like number two here in the U.S. I just didn't have a passport uh, at U.S. citizenship, so I couldn't really compete. Then I got into grad school. That kind of fell through the cracks. And then just literally as, a, as in an attempt to maintain my strength for the purpose of weightlifting, because my intention was to continue competing weightlifting, I got into powerlifting the first time that I... The first time that I was encouraged to try a deadlift, I did 315. And from then on, you know, I broke my first my first world record, I think eight months into lifting. And again, just progressed progressed so fast that I was even curious to see what this machine could do. You know, I'm like, oh, where, you know, how much can I actually do? I was just curious, honestly. But in terms of like passion and enjoyment and love for the sport. Look, I love the community aspect of the sport and, and the people that is that people that it's brought me together with and the, the doors that it's open. I'm so grateful for that. But just speaking strictly about me and my enjoyment for the sport while I'm training, it's it was pretty brutal. It's been pretty brutal because it it became it very quickly became my job and my responsibility. It was never. It was, it was never a hobby because from the moment I started powerlifting was the moment that hybrid started and that responsibility of like performing well at meets, continuously breaking records, looking a certain way, um, showing up to five, six meets in a year. That's, that was a full-time job. That was, that was stressful. That wasn't a hobby. That wasn't enjoyable. There was a lot of pressure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just kind of was, was doing it because because I had to. Mm. You brought up a very interesting point there about the way someone looks. And I've, I'm curious for you, Stevie, have you ever had a lot of backlash from people that say, oh, you're too muscly, you, you, you're not meant to look like that? What would you say to those sort of people? Um, look, I mean, we're all human. And obviously, to a certain extent, we are affected by the way that people perceive us and in their comments and what people say. Mm. And even more so, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we are, we are, our, our brains are wired to remember those instances in which people tell us negative things as an, as a, as a survival mechanism. Mm. Because what happens is, you know, you want to remember those bad things so you can avoid threatening and dangerous and, and negative situations. 
So it's so common for people to get, you know, 10 positive comments, one negative comment, and all you do is focus on that negative one. And the reason why I know this is because obviously I was very afflicted initially when, you know, I'm putting myself out there and I'm receiving all of these, you know, all this negative criticism and negative comments towards my appearance, towards what I say, towards what I do. And it was a process, you know, it took a lot of therapy and it took a lot of um, working on myself and, and, and trying to understand the human mind a little bit better for me to be more at peace with being in the public eye and receiving and being on the receiving end of many, you know, negative comments. Mm. Um, it's just, you know, now I, I see it for what it is, man. Like the reality is that there's always going to be an unhappy person that, and it's like not even about you. It's about them. Like they are unhappy. They're projecting it on you. They're jealous of like the fact that you can be ripped and muscular and successful. And once you're okay with that, that it's just, a, a, it's, it's a them issue and you can, and if you truly like the way that you look, you know, you just kind of like learn to learn to deflect that and learn to le- learn to focus a lot more on, on, on the people that support you and the positive comments. Mm. So obviously look, there's, there's, there's a set of unwritten rules about society's expectations for women, how they're supposed to look and, and uh, guidelines and boundaries for beauty and whatnot. And I'd be lying if I say, I don't try to conform to those rules and norms to a certain extent, because I absolutely do. I think most people do to a certain extent, because we want to be accepted. You know, we want to be well-regarded by, by our peers, our friends, by, the media by society so to a certain degree I do but I I think that I've done I've done a good job at staying true to myself and and to a certain extent doing what makes me happy right and looking how I want to look without trying to not let people's opinions influence that or affect me as much have you ever struggled being in your own skin at all yeah so much so much and and I still do Um, yeah, I think especially growing up and so this is what I struggled with and it's actually a well-known psychological phenomenon. It's called the female athlete paradox. And it's something that I'm, I've started doing research about because I really want to write a book about it and I want to interview other, other female athletes to just see how they felt and how they've navigated through it and how they've evolved and all that stuff. It's basically, it's kind of a, a, an identity clash that happens in, in, in girls' brains when we're playing sports. And on one end, we want to be competitive. We want to be aggressive. We want to be, you know, loud. And we want to be taken seriously by, by, by boys. And we want to be taken seriously by our coaches and whatnot. And then there's the other side, obviously, that we're, we're women. And we, we identify with being a woman and we... And part of us wants to put makeup on and, and get our nails done and get dressed up and, and be told that you're sexy and feminine and beautiful, right? So there's this like crazy dichotomy going on in our brains at all times where, where we really struggle with juggling that. So for me, I spent, and it's very, my transition into allowing myself to be more vulnerable, to be more feminine, to be more 
sexually comfortable is as of like the last year. Like I can talk about that breakthrough that I had, but you know, up until that point, up until this time last year, I was still battling with that a lot and just really suppressing my feminine side mm. because I wanted to be respected and taken seriously and because I'm an academic and, and I want to be, you know, I, I feel like if I deviate slightly from that, I'm not going to be, you know, people are going to think differently about me. So I hid behind baggy joggers and baggy shirts and hats and, and, not doing my hair and not wearing makeup for so many years. And it was really affecting the way that I even perceived myself. It was affecting my relationship, my confidence as a woman, um, you know, and then I grew up, I guess. And then I grew up, but it's crazy. It, it really is that it, it's uh, a, a lot of, the more I talk about it and the more I get together with other girls, the more I realize how widespread it how widespread the issue is. Um, so I just, yeah, I hope that, I hope that the more, the more I learn about it, maybe if I can write this book, bring more clarity, normalize the topic a bit more. Too. I think it'd be a much needed book for a lot of people. Uh, and, and this is a, a needed conversation that we need to be having because especially in today's society, there's a lot of negativity towards body dysmorphia, the way somebody looks or acts and like, that's not beauty. Uh, they can't be beautiful. Like you look at models and you, you think, oh, we're being inbred to think that a skinny person walking down a runway, that's beauty. Like we're admiring them or a woman, for example, even a man gets, gets caked up and they're, they're photoshopped to oblivion and we think, that's beauty. That's what it is when really it's so much more to it than that. Like in a beauty, it's real beauty is not just the way we look on, on the exterior. It's what's inside. It's our purpose. I, I really believe that. And I, I think because I struggle with the same thing. Uh, I thought that I was ugly. I thought that no one would love me. I thought that I was fat for many years believe it or not. And it's kind of like the opposite approach. Like when you're skinny, you think you're fat. When you're fat, you think you're skinny. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, that for me kind of led me down this, this really dark path of, of unbelief, of uh, addictions to different things. How did you get over it? It was a process, Stevie. Like the first time it ended up, I ended up in hospital for nine days as a result of my addiction and the way I saw myself. And then even after that, I ended up with other health conditions that it was kind of like I was being forced in a way, like my body was just not taking it. And then until finally it just snapped, like a light bulb went off in my head and it's like, I've got to, I've got to heal from this. I've got to get help. And how do I get help? I've got to talk to somebody. I've got to ask somebody a question and maybe they can help me work through this, this trauma, this, these addictions. So that's how I helped, I guess, myself by asking other people. And I think I removed that, that fear of judgment of what other people are going to think of me. And I'm curious, how did you have your breakthrough? Was it very similar to me? Did you go to somebody and ask them? Man, I had kind of a, an epiphany last year. I, 
randomly met this couple, uh, Mike and Christina, and they're professional photographers. They focus on uh, female photography and video. Mm. They do a lot of like OnlyFans type stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and their their whole mission is to to again break that stereotype of what is perceived beautiful and what isn't by society and and really try to teach everyone really try to teach their their viewers that everybody can everybody is beautiful it just depends on 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 your perspective and on your personal preferences right so i met them at a dinner party and uh just we started talking about the same topic they showed me some of the pictures. I was like, oh, I would, you know, I would never feel comfortable doing something like that. You know, I don't, I'm not confident enough in the way that I look, you know, my, my, my ass isn't as big as, as, as those other girls and my legs are too big and my, my back, like I would feel really uncomfortable. I'm not feminine. I could never wear that, that kind of stuff. And they were like, well, you know, whenever you're ready, you know, we would love to support you. We, we're going to hold your hand and help you through the whole shoot. And you'll see how much you're going to love it. You're going to, you're going to see yourself in a different light. Mm. Took a few months. Eventually, I I bit and I scheduled scheduled uh, a photo shoot with them. And they planned all my outfits. They helped me out with all of that. They did my hair, they did my makeup, and it was a really uncomfortable shoot because it was something I had never done. I've only posed for fitness mm. stuff, you know, weights and like like really hold my breath that kind of stuff. And man. The second I saw those pictures afterwards, like even just like in their camera, I'm like, wow, I really am beautiful. Like in a different way, right? Like you're, yeah, I was right. I don't look like those girls. I look different and that's totally fine. I still look beautiful. And I just, it was a complete 180 change in in the way that I saw myself just through a, literally through a different lens, through somebody else's lens. And it was just so interesting. Uh, and then just through... And then just starting starting a conversation on my own social media about how I felt and the reasons why I, I, I had never done anything like that, talking about uh, objectifying, sexualizing women and, and the female athlete paradox and how much I struggle with like balancing my, my masculine, my feminine side. And just starting a conversation about that just helped me so much. And, and I honestly, yeah, did I get some negative criticism? Of course, but I got so much positive from it and ultimately independently of what people think or say about it it was for me right my perspective about myself changed because I finally I finally understood that it really it sounds cheesy again but beauty is in the eye of the, of the beholder you know it all depends on who's looking mm. I think we when we look at beauty I think you're right everyone is beautiful in in, in their own way in their own way like we all have our quirks, like each and every one of us. And that's what makes us unique and amazing. That's what makes us human. Like when we, we tear someone down because of that, that is only going to make them feel like they're not worth anything, which is like not true at all. And mm-hmm. that's what happened to me. Like I was bullied. I was ridiculed. And I thought, Okay, it starts with a thought and then it becomes a belief. The more you think about it, the more you start believing it. And then the more you start practicing your behaviors, they get worse and worse and worse. And it leads you down very dark periods of your life, which shouldn't be the case. 
But you know, here's, here's another beautiful thing. When we do go through it and we come out the other side, we're now able to help somebody else that is going through a similar thing. So I think there's, there's reasons for why we go through what we go through. There's uh, definitely uh, a lot of negative that needs to be uprooted in our society today and changed and turned around to something that is positive. And if you do have a problem, go and seek help. Like I, I speak about that all the time. Like if you do have an issue with the way you look or like for me, example, uh, it was more towards my voice and I thought that I sounded terrible and yet I'm doing a podcast <laughs> uh, or I talk too much and all these things like self-doubt, you just got to learn how to manage it properly. Like when the moment the thought comes in, squash it. So I appreciate you sharing all that, Steffi. It, it, it's really helpful and I hope someone listening to this is helped and, and is inspired by, by your journey and everything that you're doing. Um, a few more questions for you, if you don't mind, Steffi, because I want to be respectful. Of your no, no, no. I have. We, we can keep going. Your book, Back in Motion. Now, talk to me about the idea of being back in motion. Where did you come up with this idea? And was it hard to write? So initially, you know, I what inspired me or what motivated me to write the book was my own experience with, with back pain and injuries in general. Uh, I felt so frustrated about the lack of consistency in diagnosis and plan of care and, and just overall process from practitioner to practitioner. I was in PT school at the time when my back got really, really bad. And I had access to, you know, high level professors and people who've been in the field for so many years and even spine specialists. And everybody would tell me something different, some different advice and, and nothing was really helping. So at that point, I was just really curious about how to actually, you know, not only for myself, but for other people, like what are other people doing about it? And what does the research say? And what is some people with experience have to say, and what are maybe other athletes, what have they gone through? And again, it started with just me being really curious about what information was out there. Mm. So once I, I got in this rabbit hole, you know, we pretty much went back to 3000 years uh, ago to see like where are, how did we form the beliefs about back pain? How have the, how has the science evolved? How has the, the, how has the field evolved in terms of rehabilitation for back injuries? And where are we now actually? Because what we get taught in school, most of the time is pretty outdated because they're trying to just teach students how to, or challenge students to retain information short periods of time. And they're looking out for themselves in the sense that they're preparing us to pass boards. So it's not that it's malicious or anything, but the curriculum is slightly outdated. So I wanted to see what was, what did the current research actually say? And in what direction is it moving? So that was the inspiration to, to write the book. Uh, I ended up writing a 12 week long program for, it was called at the time, Back Under the Bar, mm. uh, it, that I input it into the hybrid software and everything. And I never released it until now. I never released it because, because back pain, the, the main issue with especially persistent pain is that 
you have to educate people on what it actually means and what it doesn't mean and what are the tools and strategies that they're going to need moving forward. So we have to move away from the structural and mechanistic um, focus of, okay, let's fix what's broken. Okay, let's let's look under an MRI, let's look under an X-ray and let's see which of the structures is damaged, which one has degeneration, which, which disc is herniated. And we have to move away from that, from the structural view. And we have to be a little bit more holistic and all encompassing and consider the person that's in front of you and all the other factors that influence someone's uh, that influence someone's relationship with pain. Mm. So essentially there's two camps. There's a structural mechanical, and then there's a biopsychosocial. Mm. And I'm, I'm the type of person that I will never subscribe 100% to anything. I like to pick and choose what I like and try it out for myself and try it out on other people and then form my own opinion based on that. Um, so, you know, within that, you know, I, you have, I had to come up with either a PDF or something to explain people how these two worlds, what these two worlds, what they mean and how they coexist and what we can take from both of them in order to improve or our, our, our injuries. Mm. So, a 15 page long PDF turned into a 20 page long PDF into a 30 page long PDF. And eventually it was like, okay, I mean, and I still have a lot more to say. So I think I'm just going to turn this in, into a book and it'd be kind of the, um, the assistant uh, educational material for the, the program that I wrote. Mm-hmm. So it took about two years to write uh, and publish and all of that. And now it's out. Congratulations. Like yeah. writing, a, writing a book is no easy thing. I just yeah. finished my first ever book. Um, and uh, like I, I talk about in the very first, like the introduction, I say it took me a year to figure out what I didn't want to say and a year to figure out what I needed to say. Like it's, it's such a hard thing, right? Like, but I'm always super proud of people that actually go that extra mile and complete it because like well done for completing it. If I was to get your book right now and open it up to any chapter or page and that you're most proud of that you think that has the most information in there. I know the whole book's filled with information, but one that could give me a renewed perspective, which page or chapter could I turn to? Mm, That's an interesting question. I think I think the one that talks about what pain actually is. Mm. That one's pretty, either the either the chapter where we debunk a bunch of myths about back pain. It's just a bunch of things that you're told, you know, in a doctor's office and, and we pretty much disprove them with evidence, with science. That one's interesting because there's a lot of uh, just common health, commonly held beliefs about back pain that are just so misleading and wrong i think that one's interesting and then actually understanding what pain is and how it actually works i I would say those two pain's not all in the mind right (laughs) that's my biggest pet peeve man if somebody (laughs) says that run the opposite way (laughs) because yeah like pain pain, you got your body's telling you something if you're if your back's hurting or if any other area of your body's sore like it's more than just a mental thing. Like 
not in your head. It's not. It's definitely real. Pain is definitely real. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Not always. It's just not always tied to structural damage. That's what yeah. we need to understand. You know, we know based on just MRIs that fifty-six percent of individuals between the age of twenty and thirty have asymptomatic disc herniations. You know, and that number spikes all the way up to like eighty-four percent for ninety-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to. Pain, pain, pain can exist in the presence or absence of something being wrong, mm. and and that's that's important. And, and understanding the factors that influence pain is the is the first step towards managing them. Mm. Because we can sit down here and play the Sherlock Holmes of injuries, and I'll poke you around and I'll make something up and I'll tell you that your your leg length is one millimeter higher on one end on one leg than the other, and that's the cause of your pain. You know, but in reality, like there, there are things that influence your, your your perception of pain and that influence uh, your recovery a lot more. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of pain, the the easiest way that I can explain it is pain is just like a smoke alarm. And I took this from it's actually a free PDF from Greg Lehman. You can find it at greglehman.com. It's amazing information. But pain is like a smoke alarm. It it doesn't really tell you. Uh, whether there's danger or not, it's just, it's an alarm. It doesn't tell you about the severity of it. And sometimes it goes off for no reason at all. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, have you ever gone to an Airbnb or even maybe in your own house and you're cooking bacon and the alarm goes off yep. or sometimes maybe you just put oil in a pan and mm-hmm. that is enough smoke for the alarm to go off. So that's called sensitivity. When the alarm is too sensitive, to the input that it's receiving, it'll it'll result in 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 a, in an outcome that doesn't necessarily tie to what is actually occurring. Mm. So, in terms of pain, we gotta find ways to turn down the sensitivity of the alarm, right? So, forgot where I was going with this, but yeah, so it's one of the things to consider. It's one of the things to consider about pain is what are, so what are the factors that play into people's perceptions and of pain is your environment, your culture, your previous beliefs, your, your previous experiences with an injury or in a particular situation or with a movement. Mm-hmm. And so you got to find ways to either remove some of those stimulus or, or, or make that cup bigger. So you can take more of that. So you either increase your tolerance and your capacity for those things, or you remove those things. So that you can desensitize that alarm over time. Is it a combination of eating the right amount of food, getting physiotherapy, and also doing exercises? Is it a combination of all those three? As far as what goes. To heal pain in specific areas or just in general healing pain? Um, Look, it starts with a conversation. Like education should be at the core of of a, a therapy session. So it starts there. It starts with a conversation, starts with addressing people's fears, starts with giving them the right information, starts with making them feel comfortable about their about their injury as much as possible and try to normalize that. Look, what's the first thing that the first thing I saw one time when I worked uh, walked into a sports medicine doc, uh, doctor's office was a model of a spine and the disc was outside of it. Mm. It was laying, laying out of it subconsciously just by looking at that you're like oh fuck you know maybe my maybe my disc slipped so far out that it's just sitting 
in my stomach inside of me. It's just subconsciously, it's a very kind of like fear-mongering, fear-mongering thing. So starting with having having the, the right narrative and, and educating our patients about about their injury in a way that doesn't scare them and doesn't doesn't move them away from moving, from movement. And then from there it goes to um, delivering a positive movement experience. You know, we, we don't know for a fact which treatment is the best treatment. We don't know if it's a lack of stability. We don't know if it's a leg length discrepancy. We don't know. We don't know. That's the truth. We really don't know. What we do know if that is that there's a hurt, mm. there's something hurting, and uh, there's some things that don't hurt, some things that hurt, and that is it. So our job as therapists should be, look, let's find a way to keep you moving and keep you involved in the things that bring meaning to your life that you love to do. Um, and, and, and just try to find a way to, to, to keep you pushing forward instead of getting into that like deconditioning fear, catastrophizing loop, negative feedback loop where you're just getting worse and worse and more fearful of moving. You're starting to limit, limit the, your amount of movement variability. You're starting to decondition aerobically and strength and losing muscle and all that stuff. So we want to move you away from that. Anything that moves you in the other direction is a good therapy. Anything. You can do bird dog, dead bug, side planks. You can walk. You can walk backwards. You can push a sled. You can pull a sled. You can, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just keep moving. Avoid being deconditioned. Avoid it, trying not to or, or surround yourself with therapists and with a team that doesn't make you afraid of the injury and doesn't make, doesn't try to blow it up in your mind and it'll work really in time. We know that time heals it all. Most, most back injuries resolve on their own, given the right amount of time. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing is like how much time it takes me to recover from a back injury is different than how much time it takes you. Depends on, you know, how long did you have the pain? How, how long were you in pain for? And what was, again, previous experience with pain? What's your stress level like? What's your nutrition like? How do you sleep? It's all of these things. And we, we all heal at different, at different rates. Mm. So if you give an injury enough time and you really stay off of the things that make it worse, it sounds like common sense, but trust me, trust me, what people do is that they jump from therapist to therapist until they get the answer that they want which if you're an athlete, you want somebody to tell you to keep training. And until you get that answer, you don't stop. And then you get that answer and you'll keep training and you'll keep running against the same exact wall. Mm. So at some point there comes a time where you really have to take your foot off the gas and really let things calm down. And I'm not saying forever. I'm saying let things calm down and then slowly reintroduce the movements that you once couldn't do in a, in a, in a way that's safe and not threatening for your, for your body and your mind. This is gold. <laughs> this is gold. You, you, you went off there. I love it. <laughs> um, I, I have a, a back injury as well. Like I, when I was younger, a fat kid jumped on my back and literally my 11th, 12th and 13th ribs all popped out and couldn't, it's like they always do it, do it if I don't exercise that area, like if I don't strengthen it, like it's gotten better over the years. But oftentimes, like if my posture or if I've had a strenuous day, I notice that I've got lower back pain and I'm like, oh, great. Now I've got to do more exercise or I've got to see a, a physiotherapist to help support it. So I love how you, you, you explained all that for me. Like, and for those people that actually are 
struggling with back pain. So it's great, great information. Um, two, two more final questions for you. I feel like I talk to you for ages, but uh, this one's more of a fun one. Uh, what would you say has been the weirdest food combination you've ever tried? Weirdest food combination I've ever tried. Um, okay, so there's this dish called arepa. It's a Venezuelan dish. It's kind of like this corn dough that you mix with water and uh, then you put in the pan and it's really crispy on the outside and, and soft on the inside and it's really nice. But it's supposed to be like a, a salty dish, right? Like usually people eat it with cheese and ham or chicken or avocado, stuff like that. But I used to love putting chocolate in it. Yes. So I would like melt a whole, a whole chocolate bar. I would cook it be sweltering hot, cut in the middle, put a piece, massive chunk of chocolate in there and close it and then eat it. It was amazing. Yes. <laughs> the reason why I'm saying that is I dated two Latinas. So I know, I know the food. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, what do you call it? Um, Ecuadorian food and uh, oh, I forget any other country, <laughs> but it was basically a sim similar thing. I fell in love with empanadas as well. Uh, oh, other dish it had cheese in it but then it was also like this uh sugar on top oh okay it, it worked like it was a savory sweet uh doughy sort I'm of combination that. i'm into that when it's both sweet and savory it's the best yeah tell me about it like it just got <laughs> me um i still miss those damn empanadas today <laughs> i want i want them um <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to try and get my brain out of the, the food gutter right now and, and focus. Uh, but my final question for you is my all-time favorite question. Uh, it's a hypothetical one, so I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it or we'll call it magic for the sake of an argument. They've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I think it'd be a mix of, again, personal, selfish goals. A lot of them probably tied to my athletic career, you know, things that I've achieved physically because they've always been part of my, really big part of my identity and they've always been really important to me. So I think it'd be a mix of that uh, plus impressive things I've achieved with my business. You know, I, I like you, I come up with, I come up with like ideas all the time. And I always say there's going to be one day that I'm going to come up with something that's like absolutely revolutionary. And that's going to, you know, sell for millions and millions of dollars. So something like that. Uh, and then, there has to be some very big humanitarian, you know, thing that I do to help a lot of people, a lot of people, whether it's like my own non-for-profit or, or man, even just like positively, positively impacting the people's lives from friends or people that are around me. It's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but uh, yeah, I think that would be it. Athletic, athletic goal or athletic achievements, business achievements, and then having a positive impact in the world. That's it. That'd be a great film to watch. 
Steffi, where can people find you, connect with you, buy your new book and learn more about you? You, will, you guys can find me on Instagram or YouTube at Steffi Cohen and anything related to hybrid is hybridperformancemethod.com. You can find everything there, including the Back in Motion book under the Back in, under the back in Motion tag. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, your, your advice and your wisdom. It's very helpful, not only to me, but I know that someone listening to this is going to be inspired by your journey and everything that you're doing in the world. So thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.